listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. Haywood declared under oath that the aim and purpose of the IWW literature was to disseminate the idea of industrial unionism, not to destroy, but to build, to construct. As to whether the IWW sought to impede the nation's war effort, he stated, I am very much opposed to war and would have the war stopped today if it were in my power to do it. I believe there are methods by which human beings should settle any existing difficulty. It is not only the murdering of the men, and it is suffering of the wives and children, and his what this war means to society after the war is over. Nothing to follow but war cripples, war widows, war orphans, war stories, war pictures, war everything. I hope that every man that is imbued with the spirit of war will fight long enough to drive the spirit of hate and war out of his breast. That this may be the last war that the world will ever know. When he was asked about the charge of conspiracy, We are conspiring. We are conspiring to prevent the making of profits on labor power in any industry. We are conspiring against dividend makers. We are conspiring against rent and interest. We want to establish a new society where people can live without profit, without dividends, without rent, without interest. If it were possible, people will live normally, live like human beings should live. I would say that if there's a conspiracy, we are conspiring. The jury sat through four months of testimony, hundreds of exhibits, and 40,000 pages of IWW records. After one hour of deliberation, the jury announced a verdict of guilty. On August 31, 1918, Judge Landis sentenced 35 of the men to 5 years in prison, 33 men to 10 years, 15 men including Haywood to 20 years. In November 1918, the armistice brought relief and happiness as well as signs of irrevocable change in Europe governments. They had fallen and others were under siege from within. Communist insurrections had occurred in Hungary and Bavaria. Civil violence was rampant in Germany. Italian workers occupied their factories and the England Labour Party vowed to reform the British economy along socialistic lines. The American people, who but a few years before had so enthusiastically embraced the reform spirit of progressivism and then had projected themselves with great zeal into the lofty idealism of the war, were weary of any further experimentation, either domestically or internationally. President Wilson went on a tour of the nation to push the League of Nations, and on October 2nd he had a paralytic stroke and he would spend the remaining 17 months of his presidency a semi-invalid. Wilson warned the Secretary of Navy, Josephus 
McDaniels in 1917 that every reform we have won will be lost if we go into this war. This warning was borne out by subsequent events. Just as the war had transformed the president, the laws, and the country, so had it affected industry. On the defensive, for many years from forces of reform, industry had attained a position of dominance. With the production mandates of the American entry into European war, it had responded loyally and it had done well, and by 1919 it was ready to flex its new competence and strength. Labor had to adjust to the end of the war, which slowed the economy and production, which caused layoffs, along with other issues that labor did not handle well. In March 1919, there were 175 major strikes. In April, 248. In June, 303. In July, 360. And in August, 373. During the war, African Americans had stepped into the industrial workforce as never before, and the intensified racial components, job competition, had sparked deadly riots in East St. Louis in 1917 and Chicago in 1919, among other places. Also an issue was returning vets who were scarred by their experiences during the war might join radical movements, one strike in the 1919 general strike in the city of Seattle assumed the scale of mass uprisings. Late 1918, in Seattle's government-ran shipyards, where shipbuilders' unions organized, as the Metal Trades Council sought improved wages for unskilled workers, Seattle's mayor, Ole Hansen, was determined to resist labor's demands. Hansen had toured the state of Washington in 1914, campaigning as a progressive candidate for the U.S. Senate. He had held pacifistic views, but once American troops sailed for Europe, he became a super patriot. Seattle was a strong Union town in 1917. They objected to the port being used to ship munitions to anti-Bolshevik fighters, and on December 1917, the vessel Shuka arrived. The local longshoremen several times refused to load this Russian vessel. On January 12, 1919, police attacked a downtown rally protesting the shipment of munitions, clubbing participants, and making several arrests angered workers at this mistreatment. And they gathered a few days later on January 16th, were again attacked by the police. On January 21st, as many as 35 Thousand skilled and unskilled workers walked off the docks. On February 6, an estimated 60,000 Seattle laborers, representing 110 of the city's 130 labor unions, halted work, closing a wide array of businesses and services. The city shut down so completely it was said even the elevators stopped running. Joe Tomalti, an advisor to President Wilson, termed what was occurring in Seattle, the first appearance of the Soviet in the country. Mayor Hansen led the arrival of federal troops into the cities from Fort Luce came 1,000, who it is reported that they brought a machine gun company and 200 hand grenades. Hansen also swore more than 2,000 special deputies, including students of the University of Washington. 
in the spring of 1918, an IWW stenographer named Lois Oliveira was jailed under the Espionage Act for sending letters urging young men to rethink complaints with the draft. As revolutions go, the general strike in Seattle was not one at all. No attempt to confiscate any private property or to seize the control of city government. No attempt to commandeer military installations, nor were they themselves armed or organized into fighting units. In fact, a strike committee was formed to ensure basic municipal services such as trash collections and provision of milk and coal continued. The strike committee offered to end the general strike if the mayor's aides would press the shipping authorities to accept the demands of the Metal Trades Council, but the city replied that nothing would be discussed until the dock workers reported to their jobs. Hansen's grandstanding was timely. Across the country in Washington, a subcommittee of Senate Judiciary Committee chaired by Senator Lee Slater Overman had been investigating pre-Germanism in America. Congress directed them to look into domestic radicalism. In the same season of fear and outrage, Eugene Debs was convicted under the Espionage Act for a speech he made in Canton, Ohio, denouncing the war, and in March 1919, New York's legislature apparently grown self-conscious that the Empire State was home to tens of thousands of aliens, and real or potential radicals created its own anti-sedition task force. The Lusk Committee, named for State Senator Clayton R. Lusk, launched immediate inquiries to discover if radicals were plotting through labor activism, bombings, and the spread of propaganda. With all this happening, the AFL and other labor organizations recommended that Seattle workers in their general strike the Seattle Central Labor Council agreed, and five days later, the effort was called off. Press gave labor no credit for policing themselves. Ole Hansen remained in the news. On April 28, 1919, a package arrived at his Seattle office containing a bomb. He was not present, and the content was harmlessly disposed of. The very next day, a package was delivered to the Atlanta home of former U.S. Senator Thomas W. Hardwick, who had co-sponsored the Immigration Act of 1918. Upon being opened by his maid, it exploded, blowing the woman's hands off and injuring his wife. A day or two later, a New York City post office worker, Charles Kaplan, read in the newspaper about the Hansen and Hardwick bombs and recognized that the description fit a large number of packages he had set aside for lack of postage. He notified the police who discovered that each of the packages, roughly 7 inches by 3 inches, contained a wooden tube loaded with explosives. Each had a return address from Gimbel's department store. Eighteen similar bombs were discovered at other post offices, targeting a total of 36 people, including J.P. Morgan, John W. Rockefeller, Jr., U.S. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, Supreme Court Associate Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Frederick C. Howe. It was assumed that the Reds were responsible, and on May 1, 1919, police raids were 
made against left-leaning offices and newspapers. This prompted more bombings, including the most daring at the home of Attorney General Palmer. The bomb went off at 11.15 p.m., killing the man delivering the bomb, who was an anarchist. This bomb was so powerful, it blew out the neighbor's windows. Body parts were found inside and outside neighboring houses. Leaflets were all over, assumed to be on the man killed. At the end of summer 1919 came another labor activism issue. The Boston City policemen were upset over wages and working conditions and had founded their own union and sought affiliation with the AFL. This was not a new idea at the time. There were 37 municipal police unions that were part of the AFL. Boston Fire Department had a union affiliated with the AFL. Work stoppages by municipal employees in 1919 as throughout U.S. labor history are disliked not only because they deprive citizens of services integral to the public safety and well-being, but because government workers are paid by tax dollars. The police grievances consisted of the salary not keeping up with the post-war inflation. They earned $1,100 a year but were responsible for $300 in uniforms and equipment in the first year. 12-hour shifts that often forced them to sleep at the station without pay. Some stations were poor replacement for dormitories, some unsanitary. One had a bathtub and four toilets for 135 officers. The vermin are so numerous in that station, reported Boston Policeman's Union President John F. Kenneth, that the leather is eaten off the helmets of the men. They were used by superior officers to run errands and could not leave the city on their days off in case they were called in. Edwin Upton Curtis, the police commissioner, reacted to this by ordering that the Boston police could not join any outside organization, with the exception of war veterans groups or the American Legion. Lawyers for the commissioner cited the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Adair v. United States 1908 and Cappage v. Kansas 1915 as precedents that had established that liberty of contract protected an employer's right to deny employees labor union membership. The policemen received on August 11th a formal charter from the AFL prompting an outraged Curtis to arrest 19 of the union leaders for insubordination. Curtis offered to drop the charges if the officers would drop the affiliation with the AFL and gave them until September 4th to do so. Mayor Andrew J. Peters attempted to intervene in the threatened police strike, but the police commissioner would not agree with any deal. The policemen were former Teamsters, carmen or longshoremen and were familiar with strikes and felt that they could go back to their former jobs. Curtis set up enlisting a voluntary force of citizens to replace the police in case of a strike. The situation worsened on September 8th, a day before the union announced strike deadlines. When Curtis suspended McInnes and 18 others, it was obvious to the state AFL and others that Curtis was aggravating the situation and began demanding his removal. Governor Coolidge, however, vowed to stand by him. They voted 1,134 to 2 to strike. On September 9th, almost the entire 1,500 policemen force walked off the job. The only exceptions were those nearing retirement. 
criminal gangs, gamblers, and juvenile troublemakers began to roam free. Windows were smashed and stores looted along Washington Street. Muggings were rampant. Curtis was all for combating the rowdies, but Mayor Peters wanted to try mediation, reminding Curtis that he had provoked the issue. But again, Coolidge backed Curtis. Meanwhile, the shop owners boarded up windows and some guarded their shops with shotguns and pistols. So Boston suffered another night of rioting with Peters calling in 5,000 militiamen. The Boston Central Labor Union thought of calling a general strike in support of the police, but with the recent outcome in Seattle and the papers and public mood clear that they did not support the police, thought better of it. The militia brought several tragic results such as in Scholar Square, soldiers fired into what was perceived to be an unruly mob, killing several people on the Boston Commons. An 18-year-old merchant marine was shot to death after he tried to interfere with the arrest of craps players. Dozens of people were injured. The AFL Samuel Gompers, just arriving back from a labor conference in Europe and quickly taking stock of the situation, advised the police to return to work and seek the judgment of a board of mediation. Curtis, backed by Coolidge, announced it is manifest that the places in the police force of Boston, formerly held by the men who deserted their posts of duty, having by their actions been rendered vacant. Gompers publicly warned Curtis that he would be held accountable for his decision the situation in which the policemen found themselves today was provoked and practically forced upon them by the autocratic actions of police commissioner Curtis Gomper said who at any time might have honorably settled the dispute by such as is naturally expected of a public official in his responsible position. Governor Coolidge shot back saying your assumption that the commissioner was wrong cannot justify the wrong of leaving the city unguarded. There is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. The policeman's modest desire to belong to a national labor union, a conservative one at that, which would help them secure more equitable pay and working conditions, had been interpreted as crazy Bolshevism and as an assault on America itself. In the summer of 1919, the steel workers were much aggrieved as wartime improvements in wages and working conditions were enjoyed by other industries had largely passed them by. Many still worked 10 and 12 hour days, six and seven days a week with no benefits, sick time, or vacation. Despite the fact that the war had been very good to the industry, profits at US Steel reached 500 million in 1919 from 135 million in 1914. It seemed like a good time to push the steel industry as the Wilson years brought about the Clayton Act, the creation of the Department of Labor, the Industrial Commission Report of 1915, which in 1918 determined that what was needed was a government-recognized policy of collective bargaining between workers and management employer-established grievance mechanisms, and the eight-hour day. Judge Albert H. Gary, chairman of U.S. Steel, refused to negotiate, and President Wilson appeared reluctant to intervene. 
Foster and other union leaders warned that the strike talk was too prevalent to hold back what was about to occur, and on September 22, 1919, as the White House remained silent, 350,000 still workers from nine different states walked off the job. By rejecting the possibility of strike talks, Judge Gary said he accepted the right of workers to unionize but feared unionization meant a closed shop that would allow a small number of workers to bend others to their will. podcast with your family and friends please rate our podcast on itunes it helps others find us if you want to contact us to suggest a topic have a question or just want to say hi our contact information is in the show notes along with our sponsor the national league of justice and security professionals where the members come first